I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. This is Chris Carter, and you're listening to The Nerdy Show. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Doug. And I'm Colin. In this episode, we're doing something very near and dear to Nerdy Show's heart. This episode is commemorating the 30th anniversary of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes, 30 years ago, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, in a late night drunken stupor, <laughs> drew some wacky, weird turtle pictures wearing bandanas with martial arts weapons, and uh, it turned into a global cultural phenomenon, of which all of us uh, of, of an we're age obsessed, were obsessed. Yeah. yeah, we were we were lost in uh, turtle mania. It's true. I still have all those figures that I'm going to bequeath to my children when I have them one day. <laughs> I too have a a chest of figures locked away. Did you guys have like the sewer system and yeah. the, the blimp? Yeah, man. I had the blimp. Do you have the blimp? Yeah, I had the blimp. Oh yeah. It, the, well, my blimp <laughs> popped. Yeah, it, it it died quickly. I think all of them did. Mm-hmm. I still have the thing that detaches. You know, the glider. Yeah, I still have that. So in this episode, we're going to be talking to the most prolific Ninja Turtles creator of all time, and it's neither Eastman nor Laird. It's Steve Murphy. If you don't know that name, well, he hasn't been as well publicized. In fact, his biggest claim to TMNT fame is writing a comic entitled Eastman and Laird's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures. And yet, Eastman and Laird never wrote any of these particular Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures. It's like J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, but it's really just Peter Jackson rewriting it. (laughs) Well, perhaps so. But more so if Jackson's Rings were almost completely their own thing, and it was up for debate which was better. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures, which was originally published through Archie Comics, is actually the longest-running, continuous Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic series of all time. Oh, wow. So it's 72 primary issues and miniseries and spinoffs and annuals, all that, and uh, largely it was written by Steve Murphy, and uh, then the bulk of the primary series was drawn by Chris Allen. So they got more hands-on with this than pretty much anyone else. That's right, even more than Eastman and Lair themselves. Crazy. Wow. One of the other reasons you might not be familiar with Murphy's name is that he wrote TMNT Adventures under the pen name Dean Clarane. As to why? No, I'm not really sure, so we'll have to ask him. But it's not just comics that makes Murphy the most prolific TMNT author of all time. No one else has written more turtle stories across as many series or even as many mediums. He was even a writer for the amazing 2003 animated series. And for those of you not familiar with TMNT Adventures by name, you may remember this book, 
because it was somewhat unavoidable to kids in the late 80s and early 90s who were fans of Ninja Turtles. It was published and distributed by Archie Comics, and uh, it was originally based on the 1988 animated series. There was a three-issue miniseries, and the first four issues were all adaptations of Ninja Turtles scripts, but by issue five, when Steve Murphy took over, it shifted in a different direction, with all new stories. And eventually, by the end of the 72-issue run, it had become extremely mature, in some ways more mature than the Mirage series ever got, Mirage being the publishing house that created Ninja Turtles, Eastman and Laird's publishing company. It's weird to see something like the Turtles, which always felt larger than life and like was able very fun very colorful but to see it be like not necessarily gritty like oh the deep mature gritty dark knight return sort of thing but just dealing with i mean i won't i won't spoil it but but did they, they no, deal with some go, go for it it's been out for um 20 years now go all right well i mean it was new to me but it's like dealing with with uh zombies and nazis and time traveling so you get like the feel of like turtles in time but what if turtles in time at one point they end up in berlin when it's being bombed and hitler's there it's just like it's it's simultaneously fun and and it's funny the way it's supposed to be but at the same time it's like this is intense like i don't know it's so hard to explain but i love it i threw doug in the middle of it doug did you ever read any of this as a kid no like i like i said before uh, on an episode of state of the empire as a kid i never really was into comics not because i didn't want to be but because in my hometown we only had one comic shop and it was mostly just for baseball card collectors and if you were under the age of like maybe 20 if you walk in there without a parent, you just got glared at until you left. So I didn't I didn't get any experience with comics like whatsoever unless it was secondhand from a friend. And uh, I just was not familiar with the Turtles comics whatsoever, even though I would have devoured them if given the chance. Longtime Nerdy Show listeners will know that Colin and I go way back. I've known Colin longer than anybody who's not a member of my family. It's true. I know Cap longer than that. You know, John, is that true? Well, let's see. Longer than I've known my own brother. That's tricky. I don't know that we are aware of our consciousnesses as far back as that would require us to even pull up that information. That's a mom kind of question. (laughs) 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 But I know for a fact that you and I had some interaction with this because the first time I ever saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures was on the playground of the school where we met. Yes. Particularly the intergalactic wrestling issue, one of the first ones that they did. Yeah, that was the one. That was the one that I remember most vividly. Uh, Some things that you, dear listeners, may remember if you did encounter this was the Mighty Mutanimals, uh, an anthropomorphic, somewhat mutant, not not exclusively mutant team of uh, Man Ray, who you may know as Ray Filet, as he was released as an action figure, Mondo Gecko, Wingnut and Screwloose, Jaguar, and Dreadmon, who never got action figures, unfortunately. I guess it explains my confusion as a kid when I would just go nuts with the, with the action figures. I'm like, who the hell are these people? Like, I had no context for who some of these other weird people were. Well, there, in many cases, was no context. They would Mirage was just developing insane ideas, and some of them, usually not the ones they wanted, got turned into action figures <laughs> by Playmates. And in fact, many of these characters from adventures that were brought into the cartoon show there's villains which was not what they wanted either from what i've been told tmnt adventures like i said started as an adaptation of the cartoon but went wildly in another direction from the get-go i've got some early plot points laid out from the first like 10 or so issues after it started being original stories Uh, krang is a dimension x warlord uh, revealed to be responsible for multiple planetary genocides Mm-hmm. including wingnuts bat-like alien race the technodrome is converted into a spaceship called the skull buzzer the, the rat king rules a corner of the sewers with an army of psychically linked rats but he also goes by the name hanatan presumably named after a rat-borne virus that killed many soldiers during the korean war Ooh. <laughs> 
In issue seven, the the uh, get to the intergalactic wrestling where two trees pit them against each other in combat, and a a giant disembodied cow head called Cuddly the Cowlick, who has the ability to travel through space and time, much like Tardis. Um, <laughs> you were a big fan of Cuddly the Cowlick, as I recall. Well, who wouldn't be? <laughs> I mean, it's a weird, extremely surreal concept. It's funny. And then somehow he manages to continue to fit in, no matter how serious the book got. <laughs> Rocksteady and Bebop were there, but they were very quickly kind of done away with and put out into a, a separate space as background characters. Um, there's one moment early on where Rocksteady has dreams of being a rhinoceros in the wild. He wakes up and he says, I was dreaming and I was with my favorite girly. We was back in Africa and the wild was young and strong. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Poor guy. <laughs> eventually he and Bebop are exiled to an Eden world and they, they run wild and nude with these alien rhinoceroses and warthogs. That's what they really want anyway. That's they never, yeah. you know, it's fitting. By issue 14, things get really serious. Cuddly the Cowlick drops the turtles back off on Earth, but not where they wanted to be. Instead, he puts them in Brazil for the actual reason is because April's been on assignment there and has been kidnapped by, like, mercenaries. But, uh, I mean, it deals with heavy stuff, including the real-world murder of environmentalist and labor union leader Chico Mendez. Oh, boy. Whoa. So, the, the book, it's no joke. It's highly referential. There's, like, a number of David Bowie references throughout it, including a character called Null, who's referred to as the man who sold the world <laughs> in, a, in a business transaction with an alien life form. So, that's just a rough overview of things that happen within the first 14 issues of the series. In another concept that you guys might be familiar with, when I mention adventures to somebody, if they've read it, they either go, oh, that's the thing with the giant cow head and the wrestling, or they say, oh, that's the thing with the turtles from the future and Raphael's missing an eye. Because that was one of the, the huge things is that um, right when the series really started shifting towards the mature, there's a, a storyline where they introduce the turtles 100 years in the future. In an early issue of the series, Cuddly the Cowlick accidentally drops the turtles off in the right place but the wrong time in new york a hundred years in the future this is like within the first 10 issues and they see that the sea levels have risen and most of new york is flooded and um then much much later a hole opens in the lair one day and out walks donatello and Raphael from 100 years in the future because turtles don't age the same as other creatures do so what then follows is this crazy storyline. Raphael's got a cool baseball cap and he, he has an eye patch and Donatello wears this purple trench coat and Leo and Mikey are there. They're just kidnapped for that first story arc. And that's one of the big things people remember because like shit got real. It got really real. And um, it's the sort of thing when you're reading as a little kid, you're just like, I can't believe this is happening. Like the stakes were high. The stakes were really high and they were presenting a global apocalypse that seemed very real. And the environmental themes throughout the book were heavy handed, perhaps but not done in a way that felt wrong. It felt really true to purpose, especially true when your main characters have such a relationship with the animal kingdom. Now, currently, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures is being collected by IDW, which is pretty cool because there comes a point after which none of it has ever been collected, and they're right on the verge of that right now. There's been uh, seven volumes so far, and uh, eight comes out in August. We'll have a link on this episode's page to where you can pick up all of them, which... As a fan of the series, I highly recommend you do because I assume there's no guarantees that IDW will actually collect all of it if it's not selling well. And uh, I would like to see all this collected because, quite frankly, my issues are a little worn out from being loaned to people. Fun fact, longtime Nerdy Show listeners, of course, remember our dearly departed Triforce Mike. He and I met in high school 
initially because I was drawing a picture of uh, Mr. Saturn from Earthbound. But then uh, once we got to talking and I realized he was a Turtles fan and that as a kid, he'd also read Adventures but hadn't followed the series at all. I, I didn't really know what spurred me on to do it. Maybe just have somebody else who had read the same stuff that I had because I didn't know anyone else who had. I loaned him everything. And after that, we were best friends. <laughs> you loaned me this and now we're best friends. I think that says something. So the, the, in, in a way, TMNT Adventures is actually tied to the destiny of Nerdy Show. Because without Mike and I being BFFs, there would be no Nerdy Show. That's sweet. So we have them to thank. Yes, indeed. Take that any way you want to. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to us doing this episode because it's the 30th anniversary of Ninja Turtles, we're doing it because IDW is doing a 30th anniversary special issue where they revisit different parts of Turtles comic continuity, including a brand new story done by Murphy and Alan set in the TMNT Adventures universe. That sucker came out last week. So. When was the last TMNT Adventures issue published between then and now, the 30th anniversary? So this is the first new thing to be in that comic continuity since when? Since 1995. Wow. Jeez. That's really cool. We're old, y'all. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. So guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you right here, Turtles fans. We're going to talk about some stuff that you're going to know about, that you're going to find interesting. That's going to be like, oh, that applies to me. However... We're also going to dig deep. We're going to dig deep into Turtles continuity, different story elements, politics at Mirage Studios. I mean, we're going to do it all. We're going to maybe get some new insights, but we're going to go very deep into things this interview. We're going to go like inception deep. So if you feel like you've gotten in too far, just chill out. Just take it all in. We'll meet you on the other side. And we- <laughs> take, it all, take it all in. Just bite, down, just bite down on that tongue depressor. You'll pry your eyes open like in Clockwork Orange. Oh, no, not Louis Vuitton. <laughs> anyway, right now we're going to cut to a track, and then we're going to talk to Steve Murphy, a.k.a. Dean Clarain, his pen name from when he wrote TMNT Adventures. This episode, we're featuring tracks from Overclocked Remix's recent project, Shellshocked, a reimagining of the soundtrack to Konami's Turtles in Time. And we're starting from the beginning. This track, Hot for April by Six Toe Sounds, reimagines the first level's music, Big Apple, 3 a.m.
Welcome back, guys. With us on the phone, we have Steve Murphy, a.k.a. Dean Clarain. How you doing, Steve? I'm all right. How about you guys? Doing great, man. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks for flying me down. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you were working at Mirage and somehow managed to end up as series writer for this series that lasted far longer than maybe anybody would have assumed it was going to. How, how'd that happen? Well, it wasn't really working for Mirage. I was sharing studio space with the artists of Mirage. I was working on Puma Blues then, and I had nothing to do with Turtles whatsoever. But then Ryan Brown, boy creator and character designer, came to me and said, there's difficulty with the uh, Archie book. They were having trouble getting it out on time. We should do it. And I'm like, what? It was Ryan's idea. Ryan is, in, in many ways, I suppose, the, the co-creator of the series. You know, you wrote all the scripts, but um, many of the early books, actually, like, maybe over half of the, the series itself is presented by Dean Clarain and Ryan Brown. So what was his role in the series? We co-plotted. Often, um, Ryan would have this bare-bones plot, like, okay, listen, um, there's a creator, his name is Leatherhead. He's been created by this Mary Bones character. They live in the bayou, and he winds up in the city, and he finds turtles, and then he dies. And I'd be like, <laughs> okay, what? And he would say it. I'm like, well, Diane, that's not really a plot. He goes, yeah, it is. Go ahead. And then I'd expand on it, go back in, and, and we would just bounce off each other. In fact, we were housemates at the time. So it was a very fun, creative period. So he would often come up with the drum of the idea, or I would throw in a character, or we would co-create a character and then kind of build a story around it. And my job was to also kind of create a continuity. And you did quite promptly, I might add. All the uh, the various storylines tended to build up and then weave into other storylines, which was, um, for an all-ages book at the time, kind of unprecedented. I didn't even realize it. I had no idea, because I did, had no idea what I was doing. And, I had <laughs> never written, and that's true. I had not written for kids before. I had no idea how I was going to like it. Wrote issue five in about a week and found out just how behind the book was on schedule. And I wrote six right on top of that and then seven on top of that, which is why seven had a different art game, five and six. And we're kind of we're trying to get ahead back on schedule. And then I just kept going. And at some point, Ryan left Mirage. And when he did, we no longer collaborated. And around that same time, Chris Allen became the primary artist. And then eventually he and I started to collaborate. Why the pen name? Why Dean Clarane? I mean, like this, this was actually really confusing. I remember, I think it was back in like 2009, maybe 2008, the news was broke on um, Ryan Brown and Steve Levine's blog spot that you and Dean Clarane were one and the same. And it was just in- absurd because I, as a fan, had like looked for information on Dean Clarane and he was a ghost. He didn't exist. <laughs> I'd been writing Puma Blues, which was more adult oriented. So then I was asked by Ryan to write this kid's comic book, and I had no idea if I would like it. I didn't know what to feel. Like, gee, do I write it as Steve Murphy? It didn't quite feel like a Steve Murphy type of thing. So I said, a pen name, why not? And I created this pen name, and it's actually an anagram of the name of the girl I was dating at the time. (laughs) Did she appreciate that? Oh, she loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it that made you a little, like, maybe hesitant about it? Because if you wanted to put a pen name because you weren't sure if it was going to work out, was it just the fact that it was pitched to you as a children's book? Or was it that they gave you, like, certain restrictions that you knew straight away things you could not couldn't do? No, I guess I was a little embarrassed because I wasn't sure how my peers would accept it. You know, like, here's a guy writing this more serious kind of environmental weird story with Michael Zuli, and he's also writing this kid's book. So... I was like, why don't I just have these two things? And first, you know, also, I had no idea if I was going to continue with this. I had no idea when Archie was going to want me to stay on, or even if Peter and Kevin liked it, you know? So I thought it might be a short-lived thing. Mm. 
and it became clear, I think, by, for me, it was by issue 11, I was really into it, and I wasn't getting any negative feedback. In fact, I wasn't getting much feedback at all from <laughs> either Mark, Raj, or Archie, and I eventually started to like that more than I did writing Puma Blues. I guess that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, for Colin and Doug and any listeners who are not familiar with Puma Blues, that, that was a, a book that broke you into the scene. It broke Michael Zuli in the scene as well. And then you had fans by the names of Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman who were very much into your work. So I guess it would be weird being like, I'm writing a kid's book now, guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, and Puma was a really difficult book for me to write. It was so personal in terms of what I was going through my personal life. I mean, it just filtered through that book. It was at times agonizing because we were on a monthly schedule for a long time uh, with Puma. And I would struggle to meet that deadline. Whereas with the adventures title, it was easy. I mean, it was fun. I didn't have to pull out any angst at all that was within me. So I think it became kind of a cathartic, freeing type of thing, especially when I started getting letters from kids and the fact that they were digging it so much. That just felt so good. Yeah, I um I recently reread the entire series, including the letters pages, which is something that, for whatever reason, I ignored as a kid. Wow, these, these words don't have pictures associated with them. Why would I read those? <laughs> <laughs> But um, it's really great, actually, reading these old letters, because there's a ton of female readers, which I think may also have been yeah. unprecedented at the time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, certainly it was like 50-50. I mean, it was really amazing. I and mean, that was just a small sampling. I mean, we printed maybe, what, three or four letters per book, and we were getting hundreds, and they were all coming to my P.O. box. <laughs> so I had no idea it was going to be this big popular thing. And fan art was coming in, and the fan art in those days there weren't any scanners. So Ryan wanted to white table a lot of the kids art and tried to mimic their style, just to make it so that um, the colors could be dropped in by Barry Grossman over at Archie. Yeah, I, I know that actually very intimately because uh, I, the one thing I did do was I did submit a picture at one point, which I'm sure wasn't very good. I have no recollection of what it was, but I, I colored it. And so uh, I got a really nice postcard from Mirage, but they, they couldn't be couldn't be published. <laughs> wow! Yes, that's right. Because we had um, various. In fact, I think even the girlfriend who, who was the anagram of Dan Kaplan, she and I think Dan Berger's girlfriend were answering fan mail. You know, did you eat the cereal, turtle cereal? A couple times, yeah. A couple times a day. Uh. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember, there was a contest, and I, I don't remember what it was. If it was an art contest or whatnot. There were three age groups, and People were invited to send in their fan art, and the fan art was to be judged by Eastman and Laird, and then there were these three different first prize winners, and I think second and third prize as well, but in three different age categories. And that mail was addressed to Mirage Studios itself. And I wasn't really aware of it, because it was taking, you know, something on the, in the background. And one day, Jim Prinder, who was the office manager, came to me and said, would you like to just sort through the art, and just pick out, you know, like 10 from each age group to pick Pete Kevin to let them judge, because they don't have the time to go through all this art. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I had no idea how much art it was. It was like, I'm not even exaggerating, four like steamer trunks full of art. There were <laughs> thousands of unopened letters, and it was impossible to go through. I mean, I gave it my best, but I wanted to open like a couple hundred of each. And it, was, it was awful. All these things were unopened wow. because there was no staff to handle it. I always felt really bad. Even though I shouldn't have been the one feeling bad, it wasn't my company. Like <laughs> it may have been like the next Picasso in there, like some young, <laughs> brilliant artist who's like, please, if only they'll look at my picture of Donnie. My dreams of being an artist are now shattered. <laughs> Suddenly the real world, it's a harsh place. He grows up and he puts away the crayons and never picks them up again. Yeah, and now becomes a lawyer. <laughs> look at the original Jeff Smith art in there. <laughs> one thing I, I never noticed uh, until I was rereading this is that uh, Jeff Smith did an annual cover for Adventures, which is really cool. Yeah, I forgot all about that. 
Um, we had a, I forget the characters, only created by a guy that worked at Archie, Paul Castiglia. And uh, Paul got Jeff Smith to do the cover. There's a lot of interesting, um, I guess, fill-in artists. Even Gene Colan did a single issue, kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, there came a point when I um, found out he was living in Vermont. We're, we're in Massachusetts. Raj Studios, Home of the Turtles, was about 20 minutes from the Vermont border. And Gene lived not far from the border. So he must have been maybe 45 minutes away. And I forget how it came together, but he was looking for work. And so he decided to do a script. And so he wanted action figures as well as payment. <laughs> and I thought he just wanted the action figures for his grandkids or something. But if you look closely at that book, you'll see that he drew from the action figures. Oh, jeez. Because <laughs> look at the belt and you'll see that. Those are the action figure belts. And it was awesome because his art style was so fluid and crazy. I mean, it was, to me, I grew up reading him, uh, his art on Doctor Strange and on Daredevil and then Captain America at times. And it was really a thrill. Um, and uh, Gray Morrow wound up doing a backup story that we ran later on. Was that the uh, the Angel story? Yes. The original pages are gorgeous. Just simply gorgeous. And if you know Graham Morrow's work, it's so delicate. And the pages are just perfect. You couldn't even tell where he blue-lined him. It was just so clean, and it was such a drag to have to nail them back then. <laughs> so with Adventures, it's an interesting creation, because you know it started off as straight script adaptations of the series, and then... It still stayed all ages throughout its run, though it pushed the boundaries significantly, even by today's standards. But there was also integration of characters and vehicles that were, you know, like action figure, uh, toy or show properties. Yes. First of all, I broke from continuity because Ryan said, let's just make up our own stories and put in our own secondary characters. Ryan had dreams of having all his characters made to action figures, but I hadn't watched the cartoon show, so I wasn't really familiar with that universe. But I quickly got a primer, I guess, from Ryan and then read those preceding issues. And I had no idea how to treat Bebop and Rocksteady, which is why I think they're so different from the cartoon show. I kind of had a soft spot for them. Um, when I eventually did watch the cartoon show about five years ago, my daughter, I was like, oh my God, was I off on characterization? <laughs> <laughs> like 25 years too late. And then Playmates was like, please put some of the stuff in the comics. Can you try to put in a vehicle? Can you try to put in some characters? So I was like, you know, all right. And that's why you found a stuff in the wrestling issue. You know? <laughs> and yet so ridiculously different from every other Ace Duck. Yes, I didn't know, of course. I thought the action figure, I was like, what's he got a bomber's jacket on for? I had no idea. <laughs> I, just, I always thought that was one of the dumbest of the turtle action figures. So I started using the vehicles more than the characters if they continued to co-create or, or use Ryan's characters in the stories. But then, you know, what happens is after you get like five, six, seven, eight issues done, your world is just expanding. And there's so much more to pull from your own little world that I, you know what, I'm not going to ever watch the cartoon show. I will just continue along this vein, and that's it. You know, but like something I alluded to earlier was the fact that you know, there was never any feedback from anybody. The only thing Arch cared about was that we got things done on time, and that was it. It wasn't until a couple of years later when Chris Allen and I, I guess, maybe pushed it too much with the Hitler's brain story <laughs> that Archie started getting upset. But for you know years, it was like working in a vacuum. I mean, we had each other's input, Ryan, myself, um, Ken Matroni, um, the uh, penciler, and Dan Berger came into Inc., and then eventually Chris Allen, and then John D'Agostino. Looking back, since you guys were working in a vacuum, was there any great idea that you had that got trashed? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. There was no input from Peter or Kevin or the guys I shared studio space with, and that would have been Jim Lawson, Mike Dooney, Steve Levine, Eric Talbot, and Dan Berger. Dan loved inking the book, 
And it's just really Ryan and I. And other studio guys really looked down on the Archie book. They felt that the black and white book was like the balls. That was where everything was, was there. That was like more serious. And we were just doing this goofy thing. So really, the only feedback that you would get like off stories would just be fan letters that came in? Yeah, that was the only feedback on stories. That was wow. it. Yeah, it was weird. You know, but, you know, like when Jim Lawson did issue seven, the wrestling issue, I thought his art was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I just laughed every time he turned on the page. I really felt that Jim should have done more stuff for kids. You know, he, he did a few other issues, but the way he drew Crying Hound and Ace Duck, it's just too funny. And later when he did Krang, when Krang got on top of Shredder's head. For Colin and Doug and listeners, that was a, the thing that you always figured would have happened with Krang, where he as a brain creature actually got on someone's head, actually happens in this book. And he gets fed up with Shredder and adheres himself to his skull and takes over his body. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and you know how I got the idea is that one day I took a Krang faction figure and I took an exacto knife and shaved off part of Shredder's action figure's head and put Krang on it. And I glued it to a table and I wrote some kind of note for like Pete to read the next morning. <laughs> and that's how it started. And I was like, you know what, why don't we do a story like this? And I couldn't get any work done sharing studio space because those guys would just fool around all day because they were drawing. But I couldn't do that and think anyone right. So right. I would kind of come in in the afternoon, share on the shenanigans for a while. They would all go home to their wives because most of them are married at that point. And then I'd have this big empty room to myself in the evenings when I wrote. Hmm. And then I would get stoned and do stupid things like that. <laughs> well, it's cool to so know you, that, that, that goofing off actually led to something pretty awesome. <laughs> it seems like there was a lot of inspiration that came from the action figures, which is really interesting. Yeah, I was never one to buy action figures. Never. Uh, Ryan Brown and Peter Laird loved action figures. And we would regularly, I think maybe as much as once a week, go out on an action figure buying trip. We would all jump into like Pete's giant SUV and go to Toys R Us, KB Toys, and a couple of mom and pop stores. And I would go with them and they would just buy, buy, buy. Every now and then I'd buy like something weird. And then I started then having this really weird offbeat collection of action figures, which I found very inspirational indeed. You know, you play with them and think, you know what? You could write stories about these guys. It's got to be so weird when you're working in a universe that no one's criticizing anything you're doing and yet. There's a whole other parallel universe that is the cartoon and all these crazy action figures. So you just go to a store and say, what's out there in the universe today? Look at this weird thing. What is this thing? This would make a great story. <laughs> like, I can't even imagine what that would be like. <laughs> I don't remember. But yeah. <laughs> Mirage seems like a really unique environment. At the time, it was more or less an idea house, right? It was sort of that. You know, it was... Interesting, because you had um, Ryan and I, you know, doing the Archie book, and often, you know, the original art would come in. Basically, I was also acting as, like, the managing editor, because the pencil pages come into Mirage first. I'd go through them, make sure they follow the script, you know. Then they would go off to Gary Fields in New Jersey for lettering. Then they would go off to the anchor, or actually sometimes come back, because Dan Berger was anchoring them in the back in the studio. Then they would go off again to Archie. So you got maybe two of that going on, you know, two issues that going on at the same time. So I had this big wall chart, you know, kind of keep track of things, which got really complicated once we started adding in the miniseries and the annuals, and it was wacky. I wish I had taken photographs of that wall, because sometimes they were just bananas. Yeah, you know, keeping track of what stories were at what, at what stage, you know? Like a conspiracy theorist, where you have the strings tying one thing over here and going <laughs> all over the place, and your family gets worried about you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. I was always, always at the Xerox machine, like, Xerox and these things, and saying, okay, inks, you know, for this issue are done. Colors are done. Okay, this one's out of here, you know, and then the next one will come in. And everything gets shifted a little bit more to the left, you know, as you 
took issues off the wall. <laughs> While I was doing all that, you had the various Mirage guys working on various issues of Pete and Kevin's book. And then you had Pete and Kevin, both of whom were in the studio, more Pete than Kevin. And eventually, Kevin just stopped coming to the studio and then stopped working on the book as much as the other guys were working on the book. And then Pete wasn't coming in too much for a long time. So it was kind of weird. After a while, we were kind of left alone. And it became less of a studio and more like we each working on our own things. So the only time we really were like, we never really liked shooting ideas out and bouncing them off each other. That was never really what the studio was about. And I always found that really surprising. That is surprising, especially with uh, having read all you guys' respective blogs in the past. And particularly on the Levine and Brown blog, there's a lot of like, you know, toy designs that were rejected by Playmates and lots of crazy ideas. And I just kind of assumed that, you know, you guys were constantly inventing new properties and either having them picked up or, or rejected by your various, uh, you know, media partners. No, it was like everybody was kind of doing their own thing. Eric might have had an idea for some kind of character design and he would work on it and submit it to Playmates. We didn't really team up that much. I was the one doing the teaming up because I couldn't draw. So whenever I would come to the, <laughs> yeah, so when I would come to the character idea, I would say, well, let's see, who would I give the last one to? Jim? I'll give the next one to Mike. I'll give this one to Eric. You know, I just kind of went around the studio like that. And then sometimes those designs get sent to Playmates and sometimes they didn't. They just wound up in the book. Or they never got used at all. And we'll, we'll link to on this episode's page to that particular blog I've been mentioning where there's a lot of rejected action figure designs and other cool stuff. Actually, while, while we're on the subject, just as an aside, years ago, Ryan Brown was actually looking to make a project out of rejected action figure designs called The Selected. And I, I haven't heard or seen anything about it in years. I was wondering if you had any clue what was going on with that. I don't. Last thing I saw from him, and that was probably a year and a half ago, he did it as a, one of his kind of detailed plots and had hired an artist, Tesla Inker from, I'm going to say, Argentina, draw this entire, I think, 64-page book and then color it. And at that point, he asked me if I would script it. Wow. Yeah. And when I read it, you know, and I love Ryan, I just couldn't work like that. You know what I mean? The whole thing was done. I actually said no, I wasn't going to do it because I didn't connect with it. Yeah. You know, I think if I had been in there at the beginning and saw the plot and maybe got it. Not to set into my two cents in there. I had a greater sense of what he was thinking as opposed to come in and then boom. Plus the whole thing, it looks beautiful. I mean, the, I think he colored it, actually. But I have no idea what happened to it. But I'm sure he'll put it out one of these days because obviously he's invested money into it. Yeah, hopefully it'll surface. One of the other major elements of TMNT Adventures is that you had a lot of strong female characters. In fact, I believe Adventures is the first time in a, in a story, at least, that April was portrayed as being able to defend herself or learning ninjutsu because obviously she should. Otherwise, she'll just be a damsel in distress forever. Yeah. I mean, at, at that point, I was maybe by issue, I guess it was issue 14. By then, I was aware of how she, as a character, was treated in the cartoon show, that it was always the same. You know, she was like, news person, but had to be rescued. And I was like, you know what? I'll turn it upside down. I'll introduce her in that capacity. So that's why she was already captured by somebody in Brazil. And they get freed and then have to travel with the turtles. And then I would have a chance to develop her as a character, which I love that idea. And I kind of borrowed also the idea of, um, in the Mirage book, Kevin did an issue where it was told from the point of view of April, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was called True Stories. And I said, you know, I'll do something like that. Let's have it be from April's journal because she's a journalist, right? You know? and, <laughs> Makes sense. But I couldn't write her as a weak character. It just wasn't, I didn't see that in her. And eventually I started thinking, you know what? She's hanging out with these guys, like you just said, if they're hanging out with ninjas, she's going to want to defend herself. And so she started to learn how to use the katana. And then she falls in love with the man who turns into a giant dragon. 
Yeah, little known fact for the average turtle fan who did not read the book, um, the action figure known as Hothead was in the <laughs> in the Archie universe, the warrior dragon who was inside of a uh, firefighter from Chinatown who April has a thing for. Exactly. And I think he appeared as warrior dragon first, is that right? And then the action figure was later? That's likely, yeah. It's hard for me to figure out how, <laughs> on my personal timeline, how all that went down. <laughs> he was the one whose neck came out, right? Correct. Yeah. I love that figure. <laughs> I don't care if it didn't make sense. I wanted all the crazy animals. Well, I think we all wanted all the crazy animals. I mean, that's what it's all about, really. I mean, the pro- my problem with the hothead action figure is he's red and the warrior dragon is yellow. So Right. You see, Playmates has its own um, agenda, and that's why Man Ray became Ray Filet. They just didn't get the Man Ray joke, and that was the best they could come up with was Ray Filet. <laughs> <laughs> Man Ray? That doesn't make any sense. Ray Filet. Now that rhymes. We had many discussions with the Playmates guys over that one, but they were like, nope, race away. We're sticking with that. Jeez. And that ties in with uh, a lot of things that happened, I suppose, in the, the mid to later era of the TMNT Adventures run was that uh, you guys were developing a lot of the mutant animal characters, a.k.a. the Mutanimals, as a cartoon property. Yes. Well, again, that's Ryan with his far-reaching dreams. Mm. You know, he saw us creating all these mutant characters, and he says, you know what? Why not make a secondary team? And that's where the animals came about. And then at some point, Mirage, and separate from the Arch universe, Mirage was always had people banging on his door for like the next hot thing, you know? You got turtles, what's next, you know? Right. So Ryan was like keyed into that. But the Mirage lawyer, because Mirage Publishing started doing Usagi or Jimbo, or Space Usagi rather, they got it in their heads that, you know, Bucky O'Hare failed. Let's put out our own space habit. And they put all this money into developing Space Usagi. And when I realized after like two or three years that nobody was picking it up, we said, well, can you at least give me Panimals a try? And it just really threw us a bone. And we developed a television writer's Bible. And I don't think Mirage really pushed it anywhere. So it never went anywhere. Huh. An issue with Panimals when you guys were announcing to the fans that it was being developed as a series, there was a point where it was actually speculated that it was in early 93 said, oh, well, there's going uh, to be a show, and then it was speculated that it would be coming out fall that year, which seems kind of insane, knowing how long animation takes, especially back then. What was the timeline like there at one point? Actually, I have no memory of what you just said, <laughs> so I can't even comment. I don't know. And then one of the strangest things that happened was that after the Mutanimal series didn't get picked up, they were murdered. For listeners, like, you have these characters, you know them, you love them, their series gets canceled, and then they are actually murdered on panel, and then you also see them in hell in a terrifying shot a little bit later. (laughs) I was, like, nine or ten at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I was in a very dark place at the time. Mirage was kind of, like, getting real... It wasn't any fun anymore. Mm. You know, the place was really getting divisive. And the accountant was suddenly the CEO. The lawyer was there like all the time. Peter and Kevin had pretty much split up by that point. I never saw Kevin. Of course, he was at Tundra all the time. Pete was barely around. And it was a publishing division, which had its own slew of people who really wanted their division of the company to be like the successful thing. So that's why it had all these weird comic books coming out. And I was just pushed aside. You know, it was like the Archie book again. It was not treated seriously, even though it was selling in the hundreds of thousands of copies. And now I was in my own little office. We moved. There's no longer a big shared studio in the corner. And that's what the Archie book was, one little office. Whereas Mirage had this whole publishing division of people that took up, you know, a entire suite. So it was weird. I was just kind of pushed aside. And I guess I was feeling like, you know, fuck this. 
Um, <laughs> they're going to not push those property mix animals, and I'm just going to kill off the characters and maybe bring them back later, but in a much darker way. And that's what happened. Well, it was rough, man. It was real rough. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I learned from the experience. They were definitely formative years, and one of the most exciting things about the book was that for what was an all-ages book, effectively, it treated its readers respectfully and dealt with mature themes. I mean, certainly to keep yourself interested, I'm sure, but uh, it didn't talk down and it wasn't afraid of doing radical stuff, even if that meant breaking my heart. <laughs> well, just, what, it just what, it wasn't just the fluff companion for the TV show that many people probably assumed it was. Right. Yeah. At that point, I didn't know anybody who died, and then I did. <laughs> this was your introduction to, to death of fictional characters before even Charlotte's Web or anything like that? Yeah, no, never read it. Oh, man. You poor child. I saw the animated film, but somehow it wasn't the same. <laughs> you see, in my parallel was I was growing up in the late 60s reading Marvel and reading Spider-Man, and then, boom, one issue, they killed Gwen Stacy. Yeah. And that was uh... my shock. I was like, wow. I couldn't believe they did that. And um, we have kind of a, the same thing occur to us. Another <laughs> weird idea I had is, I think by about issue 11, I start to think, you know, there's a six-year-old kid who's buying this. How do I keep the six-year-old kid to keep reading? Because if I keep writing it like I was in issues five, six, and seven, that kid's going to get bored and move on to something else. You know, so I wasn't even thinking about new readers coming in at that age group. I thought, how do I keep that six-year-old engaged? And as that kid grows up and develops, and that's what I was doing with the book. I was trying to keep it going so that kid grew up with the book. It worked. <laughs> Cap is living <laughs> proof. <laughs> yeah, that was like my theory. You know, the thing I was doing when I was at the studio late at night by myself, thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> it was a weird thing. But, you know, Ryan and I really, we would go for car rides together, and I'd be drinking beer, and he'd be drinking Mountain Dew. He'd be driving, and, um, and we would be both tanked in different ways and just <laughs> and just talk out ideas. And you know, half the stuff we never even remembered and parts of the stuff we just didn't use and I couldn't recall. But you know, we had a lot of good ideas come out of those drives, which always wound up at a Toys R Us. <laughs> living the dream, man. <laughs> you don't even realize you live in the dream until it's over and you're like, Oh yeah, I guess that was pretty awesome. <laughs> Did you save those receipts and uh, write off those action figure purposes for taxes? <laughs> I didn't, but he did. <laughs> and the mileage, too? <laughs> oh, he knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, he was even writing off his CD purchases as saying that was something he needed in the studio. We had to have music playing. Oh, geez. Wow. He was buying Megadeth and uh, Metallica at the time. And so. Couldn't create without it, you know? Uh, yeah, that was his thing, you know? I always stay up late and maybe put on jazz in the background and that was his thing, you know? You bring up the, the heavy metal. Uh, the first issue with Mondo Gecko, he's got this band Merciless Slaughter and there's um, what appears to be actual chords and lyrics throughout the scenes where his band is practicing. And in the credits, it says uh, it was transcribed by Dan Edwards. I was wondering, like, is that a real song from a real band? What is it? It is. We, it was made up for that issue. Wow. So we had, yeah, we should play it. If I knew how, man, I would. <laughs> is it recorded anywhere? No, I don't think it is. It was like one of these things where we said, all right, well, if he's going to be playing something, why don't we have real music? And I think Dan Berger had a friend, because Dan Berger also um, plays guitar. I think that's how it developed. And I forget who the hell Dan Edwards is. But yeah, I what? think I did the lyrics. So why did I did the lyrics? I don't remember anymore. Okay, so if no one's done it before, 
your homework project <laughs> is to uh, to make this uh, song by Merciless Slaughter a reality. And of course, uh, email info at nerdyshow.com when you achieve this reality. Yeah, send us the MP3, please. <laughs> it is guaranteed play on the show. And if it meets our quality standards, we might even play it on nerdy.fm. Since we're on the subject of metal, here's a song break with Viking Guitars, Trail of Dust and Turtle Wax, a very metal rendition of the music from Stage 7, Bury My Shell at Wounded Knee. So in addition to April being an ass kicker in the series, you had Ninjara, an incredibly prominent figure in, in all the Turtleverse because she was the female mutant that everyone could respect. There were a couple others from the animated series. And, and of course, the Venus de Milo debacle of the next mutation. But, right, but yeah. Ninjara stands alone as being a well-developed, awesome character. Thank you. She's my favorite secondary character. I just put a lot into her. There was so much to do with her, especially when it occurred to me that, wow, you know, as the turtles were growing up, and that was the other thing I was doing, this round-the-world trip that they took starting on issue 14, I wanted to grow up in certain ways, and I said, oh my God, one of them is going to have a girlfriend. And it seemed like she'd be the one, because she was tough, and she could stand up to Raphael's nonsense. And uh, due to that, just kept going. And she was co-created with Michael Dooney, which is what I was surprised to learn, since she first appeared around the same time Chris Allen took the helm. Yeah, that was because at the time when I had like ideas for different secondary figures and I couldn't draw, it became Mike's turn. And I went to Mike, who, of course, always did a great job drawing female characters. And I described everything and then he drew it. Just like uh, he drew Jaguar as well. So we share a credit on that as well. And other things with other artists. But Mike had in the jar and uh, gave her the look that was just phenomenal, which, you know, of course, then Chris Allen improved upon. With Ninjara, in addition to um, Mutanimals being the first death I experienced as a child, Ninjara was the first breakup I experienced as a child. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I was sweating for a second because I thought you were going to say crush. And I was just like, oh gosh, where is this going? I had a lot wow. of crushes that predated this, but I think that there was there's kind of no adolescent reading that book that didn't in some degree fall in love with her. It, it, if it's a character that, that you can relate to, but you don't have to actually interact with, suddenly it's like... Oh, <laughs> I don't have the pressure of actually talking to a girl. I can just read about it. <laughs> yeah, they broke up. I actually kind of forgot that that happened at the end. The storyline was written by someone named J.D. Volman, which is a presumed pseudonym. <laughs> was it not you who wrote that? It is, but I don't remember why I chose that name. If it was because you make this wonderful character and someone like young Cap is heartbroken and he writes an angry letter, <laughs> it's like, 
whoever this this person this new person is get this new person out of there i would put put them back together this is breaking my heart yeah don't blame me it wasn't me it was jd volman exactly <laughs> i think i was reading a lot of william volman at the time so yeah that was me i don't remember why i did that wow so it wasn't like archie was like uh Get this Chlorine guy off the book. He's too dark. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put in J.D. Volman. You don't, you don't have to answer if it's too personal, but maybe <laughs> the inspiration for the name of Chlorine, if there was a split there, perhaps, which inspired the split between uh, Raphael and his girlfriend? <laughs> no, that relationship lasted a long time. Damn, I thought I was being really insightful. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, really sorry. perceptive. <laughs> Actually, Stan wrote to me recently and asked me that same question. I was like, what are you talking about? J.D. Volman? I had to go look it up. I didn't even notice until my most recent read-through, because it reads just like every other story that you wrote, so I didn't think twice about it, and then I said, and introducing J.D. Volman scripts. <laughs> like, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> One of the other things that was a shock to my system as a kid was the series ended abruptly. Immediately following the tragic breakup of Raph and Ninjara, there was a tease for a five-part event called Forever War. Where the only picture is of, uh, of Shredder with like a, a wounded or knocked out or maybe even dead future Donatello like attached to the, his wrist blades. And the book got canceled before you guys had a chance to tell that story. And then at the ill-fated 25th anniversary celebration back in 2009... It was promised to come out, but it never was able to materialize. Yes. The reason it didn't come out the first time, back in what year would that have been? 1990? 1995. Well, at that point, the book wasn't selling as well as it had been selling. You know, the whole phenomena of Turtles was on its downswing. The second movie had come out. Everybody made a joke out of it because of Vanilla Ice and Raza and Polka. And it was hitting its life cycle. It was on a downswing. So all across the board, sales were down and everything. And Archie was like, you know, it was like a cash cow. So they were like, we got to do something, we got to do something, you know. Murphy's killing the book with these long stories. Because we kept doing these story arcs. And they thought, at that point, they finally started saying the book is too serious. So I was like, you know what, fine, it's over. So I'll walk away, which is exactly what they wanted. So they just canned it at that point, even though we would be production on the Forever War. The first issue was entirely penciled and lettered. And the second issue, I think, was entirely penciled. That's when the plug got pulled. The first issue, of course, was all scripted, and the second issue was scripted as well. And I don't know what the third and fourth and fifth issue status was, uh, aside from being plotted, because it was a really tight, kind of weird plot, because that had to do with, you know, time travel and paradox, da-da-da. That's what happened that time. And then later, I couldn't even tell you what happened at the 25th anniversary, other than the turtles got sold at a point when we were trying to get it done. But I know we were slow in getting it going. Mm. It seemed that I had to find all the notes and the Xeroxes, and I think I started putting some of that stuff on my blog. I know I put the covers on, because I think we did all the covers as well, actually. Yeah, all the, all the covers are online. Okay. Well, that gives you a sense of the plot, I guess, in a sense. Anyway, we just never got it together in time, and we were told to slow down as well. And I believe that had to do with the fact that Super Weird Turtles were being sold. So management was like, take your time with these things. My understanding is that the sale of the Ninja Turtles property took most of you guys by surprise. Oh, complete, utter surprise. In fact, I found out before anybody else because I got a call from my friend at 4Kids. Now, 4Kids was the licensing agency. And my friend called me at like at 9 in the morning and said, you still there? I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I be here? She was because the turtles got sold. I'm like, what? Jesus. Yeah, and I was kind of in shock. I actually... I sat on that information for about two hours. I didn't know what to do with it. And then we all got an email saying there's going to be a meeting later that day, which is very unusual. 
And at that point, I said, oh, my God, they're going to tell us. And somehow we all kind of felt something big was going to happen. And they took us all to the conference room and told us. And that was, like, incredible. <laughs> it was a weird time for Turtles fans in general because the, uh, the 25th anniversary had happened and, and everyone was talking a, a big game. Mirage had released the first collection of the Mirage series. I mean, the first complete collection that they'd ever done and, and the first collected volume of that series in a very long time. And they did approximately a single run of it and then nothing. So there, were, there was all these planned celebrations and then seemingly most of them didn't really either fully develop or just it fell flat on their face. It was very bizarre. And then all of a sudden Viacom happened. Was that also when uh, the Turtles Forever cartoon was released for the 25th anniversary? That was a part of it. And actually, the delayed release of the DVD was a result of that transfer, if I'm remembering this correctly, Murph. It sounds right. You know, it was really confusing from where I was sitting as well. And when I stepped back and looked at it like a year later, it seems to me that the whole purpose of the 25th anniversary at which point, you know, Mirage spent like a million dollars to hire a, a marketing company to do this like cross-country trip with the turtle van and have the turtles plan to different events taking place, you know, across the country, the turtles forever. All that seemed to be geared, I think that makes it cynical. I do believe this is true. I do really think it was geared to heighten awareness of the turtles so that it would also be heightened in the eyes of a potential buyer, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't just a celebration for fans. I think there was more of a cynical thing going on there as well. It's like, hey, pay attention because we're looking for a buyer. And I'm not privy to anything that went on. You know, I do believe actually there was some other potential buyer as well, but I don't know any of that. I mean, it was really a shock, especially for me, because now was told that uh, you're, you're the first one to go. December 31st, you know, here's your pink slip. And also, I was the only one leaving because I was in charge of the licensing and now there was no more licensing, whereas the black and white comic could continue because that was one stipulation of the sale was that he could continue with his volume four stories. I know that the, the Mirage Universe source book was never released, which is a shame. That would be great to see yeah. the light of the day someday. Yeah, that's partially my fault, because uh, <laughs> it was a nightmare for me to organize. It just was so many characters, and I wasn't really familiar with the entire volume one that well, and so I really dragged my feet on it. That's really my fault. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you and Chris developed Ninjara independently, you guys did a uh, what was intended to be an ongoing story in the uh, anthropomorphic anthology magazine Furlough, and uh, it was drastically different. For starters, there was uncensored violence, nudity, and cussing right off the bat. <laughs> it's like you were just shaking loose all the stuff you couldn't quite get out in adventures. Yeah, you know, I don't even recall that period that well. 
I know that I lost interest in it really quickly. I think I looked at like, what do we do, like two or three chapters of that? Three, yeah. And Chris was really into it, and, um, and I wasn't. I just was like, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. It kind of came together real fast. The fact that Mirage said, okay, you can use her. But I didn't know what I was doing, what I wanted to do with the character out of that context. It was like, without the turtle universe, I didn't have a new universe yet to put her into. I didn't know what to do, so I had the idea that she had a child. And that's about all I remember. When I found it initially, because, man, like, let me tell you, dude, when after all the years of, like, Turtles ending, the final story arc never coming out, and Raffa and Ninjara breaking up, and then one day, I'm flipping through some back issues, and I see this cover of Furlough, and Ninjara is on the cover of it, I'm like, what the hell is this? There was no internet, there was nothing to tell me this existed, it was just, like, a secret chapter. (laughs) It was really surprising, and it took place in what seemingly was the future, but not as far in the future as in the hundred years forward that the future turtles live in. So it is, in fact, a completely separate universe. Yeah, it would have had to have been, because I wouldn't have the rights to use the turtle universe. Right. It got very complicated, you know. <laughs> you know, where, where is anybody allowed to take a character out of a universe owned by a company and do it somewhere else? It doesn't it, happen too often. Yeah, I just assumed that, oh, well, they're riding around the turtles, so they're just not, you're not going to see them, but, you know, sure, same universe, whatever. Cap, is that all that ever happened to you when you read these books as a kid? You're just disappointed? People dying, people breaking up, story arcs never finishing? No, it, it wasn't a disappointment. It was just something that I put an awful lot of stake in because the characters were so vivid and so, so alive. And like I got invested in them at a very early age. I was experiencing a lot of things for the first time through the pages of this <laughs> book, and it was very surreal. Well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, not sorry. It was all worth it. Okay. Growing pains. Cool. All right. I'll help you grow up. Exactly. So just like Nerdy Show, Cap is your fault. (laughs) Take that as you will, just like Nerdy Show. (laughs) The rights to the characters you created, including Ninjara, actually at some point were given back to Mirage. And then even though those characters, you're copyrighted as being the creator of that character, like you no longer own the rights to those characters. Am I right? Great. I don't even own the characters anymore. Part of um, receiving a severance when they sold the turtles was that we had to give up our rights to any characters we created. It was a very difficult decision. I would imagine. I mean, um, you and Chris actually took Ninjara beyond Turtles title, in fact. Yeah, we were trying to... I was actually negotiating with Mirage to buy certain characters back. Even though I own the copyright, I wanted to get them taken out of the Turtle universe. And I think this be in hindsight... The reason that that negotiation dragged on was because there was this parallel negotiation on the turtles. So it fell flat. I'm trying to get Manjar and uh, Jaguar and a few other characters that I killed back and um, <laughs> couldn't. So I had to, at the end, and we all had to, right down to the smallest contributor to the universe, they were signing this contract, giving the rights back to Mirage, so that Mirage and Turn can then give those rights to Viacon. That's rough, man. That's a bummer. Yeah. You know, that's how it is. And in, in turn, maybe out of respect to you and Chris, IDW recently created a character called Alopex, who is 100% a Ninjara analog, but isn't Ninjara. I think fortunately isn't Ninjara. I don't see why they couldn't just use Ninjara. I mean, they're free to. That's interesting. What, what does this character do? Is she a fox as well? She is. She's an Arctic snow fox. She was an actual fox who was mutated and fell into the service of the Shredder. And he employs her much like Shin Khan did Ninjara. And then inevitably, she and Raphael have kind of a back and forth, love-hate, Spider-Man, Black Cat kind of relationship misunderstanding kind of thing going on. All right. Well, that's cool. I like the idea of that creature, Arctic Fox. Didn't think of that one, Dan. <laughs> 
she's known in Jara, but she's she's good. And um, one of the great things about her is that uh, Alapex is actually most popularly drawn by Ross Campbell, who worked with Mirage back in the day on um, a werewolf-centered uh, miniseries. I love him. I think he's an awesome artist. I wish I could have worked with him on uh, interior pages on uh, some stories. He's really one of my favorite artists. If anybody hasn't read the relaunch of Glory that Image put out two years ago, that is a phenomenal series with his art. I'm writing by Joe Keating. Great book. Yeah, actually, I, I can't recommend uh, Glory enough. That it's It's really phenomenal. And Ross's work with the Turtles, like the story arcs that they've done, has been heightened by his art. You can see that he really loves the Turtles as characters and imbues them with just a ton of charm that might not even be there were it not for the way he's drawn them and the expressions he's given them. And that, what you just said about artists putting in that charm that may not be in the script, you know, I really felt that when uh, Chris did the art to the seven-page story we have in the IDW book. When I saw those pencils, I could just see it was like right back to 1991 or so. Chris totally getting the stuff that's really not stated in the script, but, you know, knowing what position to put Michelangelo in, what kind of looks on the faces of the characters that aren't really doing the dialogue, you know, the characters are listening. Yeah. And really, it just was so awesome. Little stuff like that that, you know, made me really miss working with him. It all came back. It was cool. I figure everyone's got to be wondering if the opportunity presented itself, would you and Chris come back, probably publish the IDW, finish the Forever War? Do more stories? Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, bring it on. No, I have no idea. You have to ask Chris. It was a pleasure working with Bobby Kernow. I mean, it was a fun process. He's a smart guy, had great questions, and had great criticisms as well. And did it in a gentlemanly manner. So if I had not been to work with him again, I'd be really happy. Yeah, well, I mean, this, this is big. This is the first in-continuity, brand-new story in, like, 20 years. <laughs> yeah, and it was interesting because... First of all, it was a complete surprise to even be asked to do it. And then the process was interesting because the process was to submit three plots to IDW. And then if they got approved, then those three plots then went to Nickelodeon, and which Nickelodeon would choose which one or reject all three and then come up with more. The story they had accepted was number one. Number two was this really complicated story where the future Turtles, actually the future Donatella comes back with a new problem that the current Donatello, which would have been the 2014 Donatello in that continuity, had to fix and it tied into events that then are in the Forever War. But it was really complicated and I spent a lot of time on it, but it worked. <laughs> then the third plot, since I was all burnt out after that second plot, I teach a yeah, comic book making class once a week at a local arts community center and the kids in my class came up with the third plot, which was very funny. So IDW approved all three. Bobby Kernow told me the things he liked about each one, the things he was so-so on. But we sent them to Nick, who then picked the first one, which I thought was the weakest of the three plots, but they approved that. I thought that the 30th was a really cool retrospective. I thought it really worked well to show each universe. Yeah, no, I, I think so, too. Um, I like that it had the, the retrospective element so people can like understand and respect where the works come from. If we're talking about your story specifically, I mean, you and Chris did a bang-up job. It was picking up like nothing happened. As I was reading it, and they go into the store, and it's, uh, I mean, uh, spoilers? I don't know. If it would have, let's <laughs> point, whatever. I'm going to let it roll, because I got to ask. Rocksteady and Bebop, you know, they're naked, and it's like, whoa. But it's, it's funny. And then they say, wait, you know, I'm not going to fight them if they're naked, which I kind of get. But then they say, what are you guys doing without any clothes on? And it's just this panel of the turtle standing there. And for maybe the first time, I go, holy crap, the turtles don't wear clothes either. I never thought of it in that way, but they're completely naked, except for a belt, really. How intentional was that? (laughs) 
Yeah, that's all it is. It's just a joke. It's like I mean I got it, but I feel dumb forgetting it. Like it's like of course they're naked. Like why did I never? Why did I never even think about that? Raphael wears clothes when he goes out in public, but when he fights crime, he's naked. I just it 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 blew my mind. You remember when the uh, large turtles had those tails hanging down? Yeah, they look like dicks. (laughs) Everybody, everybody thinks they're dicks. I'll never forget walking into like certain meetings with. uh, marketing companies and they're like you can't leave that in the art can you can you take that out like it's a tail <laughs> it is it's like people just thought it was a dick and i'm sure that's what happened with the cartoon that's why there's no tails in the cartoon yeah one of the most gratifying things for me as a fan back in the day was seeing the characters from adventures and uh, and mutanimals appear in the super nintendo version of turtles tournament fighters like armagon war and from my perspective as a kid, that was a smart move because because I love those comics. And of course, myself and at least hundreds of thousands of other kids were reading them. But in the big picture where Adventures is hardly present anywhere else, it was kind of unexpected. It just happened. And I had no input on it. And I believe, if I remember correctly, the Mirage licensing guy at the time named Jim Prindle, that he and Pete were behind that. They needed ways to expand that particular universe. And Pete said, here, I think he created Armagon, right? Yeah, uh, I believe he did. Okay. And he um, certainly designed War and some other stuff. And so Pete just drew the characters in there. Well, I'm glad he did. It's really cool seeing those characters get an- animated in some capacity. They're really gorgeous renderings of them. That's cool. I know that somewhere in there, I saw Chris Allen did the art in one of those packagings. Really? Huh. I think so. Yeah, I seem to recall seeing a nicely rendered version of Armagon on something small and box-like, and I think that must have been what it was. When you're taking the turtles around the world, this is really where a certain educational element came into the series. There are a number of mini trips the turtles take, one from Brazil back to New York, a trip over to Japan, and then from that Japanese trip, then all the way through the Middle East, and then and eventually out into space. But in all of that, without it seeming forced or pretentious, there was a ton of cultural, geographical, historical information pumped into those issues. I um, just decided to go for it, have fun, introducing kids to new concepts and to new cultures. That's all there was to it. At that point, my interest in uh, particularly in Tibet was just kind of starting. I think I I was renewed, I guess, around that point in my life. And I thought, gee, it would be great to take them through here and uh, meet the uh, Charlie Lama. Yeah, uh, (laughs) that was one of the the weirder things that happened in in the book. Maybe maybe one of the most culturally dubious moments with the uh, tornado ninjas that were the whirling divershes the forearm tiger man named Katmandu, some tantric monkeys, but not what you're thinking when you're looking at me like that, Doug. Right, right, okay. <laughs> and then the anthropomorphic version of the Dalai Lama, the Charlie Lama. Yeah, and even the tantric monkeys, of course, based on tantric monks. I just was playing with it, uh, introducing concepts again. The thing was, I wanted to create secondary characters that were based on those cultures. And that's where we get Katmandu, you know, and then we wind up in the Middle East, we've got a, a falcon. Uh, Alfalqua. And then um, Golani, an Israeli character. That was all there was to it, just introducing kids. And I think Shredder makes an appearance in there somewhere. Yes, he did. Um, and that was parallel with the, the short-lived Mechanimals book. Where is that where I introduced Armagon, or was that in the turtle book? Yeah, yeah. Issue 7 of Mutanimals, Man Ray fights Armagon. 
and then very quickly okay. turns around to wreak havoc on the turtles' lives. So yeah, so that was a dovetailing the different characters and worlds. And, that, and a lot of that also shows the influence of Chris Allen. He's got a huge interest in religion, so uh, we really clicked on that idea of introducing the turtles to other religions and other spiritual beliefs as well. Uh, and of course, he's a big sci-fi fan, which is why he wound up going into outer space before they finally arrived back in New York. I don't remember who they went after being outer space. <laughs> well, let's see. They, uh, they were in the Middle East. They get picked up by Cuddly the Cowlick. They wrestle real quick to appease Stump and Sling. Then Cuddly comes back and drops them off in South America, where the mutanimals are facing the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> in, a, in a really tremendous crossover for, uh, for, all, for all of you at home. And uh, then later they end up back in New York and then go into space again when they encounter Sarnoth. And that, that was an interesting okay. thing. Because even, even as a young kid, I was surprised because... As a kid, I'd, I'd written off those early issues. Oh, those are adaptations of the television series, whatever. That's, they're not the good stuff. That's not what the cool different things are going on. But then issues three and four of Adventures, before you guys started writing your own stories, adapted the Turtles episode, The Incredible Shrinking Turtles, where an alien, and Doug and Colin, you might remember this, an alien crashes over Central Park and dies and says that he's looking for the eyes of Sarnoth. There's three shards. Here's a locator. Go find them. And that was actually part of an early storyline back when the animated series actually had continuous storylines, very short-lived, mm. before they you know, hung out with the Easter Bunny and crap like that. <laughs> um, and what happens in, in the comic book is they adapt the first episode of that and then never pick it up again. So they find one shard and the other two are never mentioned until... <laughs> Murph, you went back and you said, oh yeah, that happened and no one did ever find the other ones and here's why. Huh. I have no memory of doing this. <laughs> you may want to pose this question to Chris Allen. It may have been his doing. Oh, yeah? Maybe it wasn't. I don't remember. <laughs> that's the thing. I often will get, you know, I talk to fans occasionally. Um, some uh, email me, and they'll bring up stuff like that. And I honestly don't remember. You know, there was so much stuff going on, not just, you know, creating stuff, but also managing it, as well as having sort of all the hats on at the time, writing like the back of um, blister packs or writing short stories for the Welsh Turtle magazine. Remember that? Wow. N- um, nope. <laughs> oh, there was a there was a newsstand Turtle magazine, and I think this probably came out quarterly. There's probably 12 issues of it, and um, in every issue, the cover was done by Michael Dooney, and I had a four-page comic strip in it done by uh, usually Jim Lawson, sometimes Dooney. And then there were features. Sometimes they would interview the actor who played Raza, you know, or they would do stuff like that. It's pretty cool. And uh, no one even knows it exists. Even wow. It was a newsstand. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I want to check that out. So that was, sounds awesome. So anyway, there were a lot of other things going on. And I think that was part of why I don't remember. Or that or my brain is always, you know, so big or so small. <laughs> and I just can't remember everything. Certain things I do remember well, but other things is just nothing. On the note of... Uh all these other things going on and you were only aware of like so many of them because I mean there were ridiculous amounts of them permeating every kind of media. Nerdy Show was talking at one time about doing the Ninja Turtles uh, and other Strangeness Palladium RPG tabletop game and that has a very complicated mechanic for creating your own creatures. I just want to know if you knew anything about that as someone who probably without any mechanics you, you, you created creatures that you thought would be cool if you were at all familiar with the RPG and, and at all familiar with how they created the, their own characters or if that had, if, if you took any inspiration from that or if they actually approached you on anything like that? You know, the, the RPG stuff was purely a, a Pete and Kevin thing. I was never even aware of it. 
you know, when you're saying like you have them going to Brazil and they have them go to outer space, there's so many like modules for the game where they're doing some of the stuff that would be in the Adventures comic. It seemed like it would go no, hand in hand. Wow, I had no idea. I mean, if they were taking stuff from what we're doing, I didn't know about it. Really, there was, I didn't even know where that stuff, who approved it. Like it just, in the spirit, it felt really similar. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no idea. In fact, I would have to guess that they weren't being approved. <laughs> I don't ever remember seeing, you know, because that was a very early um, license. I mean, that was one of the first licenses. So I think they had more of a wide open uh, contract. That's my guess. The question might be, when was the last module published? Because I believe the RPG was one of the first things that they ever licensed. So It seems that way, So yeah. it could have actually wrapped up quite quickly, despite how many books there are. Maybe, but then it's just one heck of a coincidence, man. I mean, because there was tons of Lawson art, Eric Talbot, I think, Laird. I mean, lots of what seems to be direct involvement, but also it's it's madness. Those books are madness. So. Yeah, I mean, they are, but it's just the, the coincidence of it being like, okay... Uh, if you want to make a rabbit, if you want to make a monkey, if you want to make, like, they tell you how to make all of these things, and then, oh, and if you want to go into outer space, here's where you meet other creatures like Krang, and here's what they're like. I, it was, I don't know, it, it is very similar, but but cool. <laughs> so, you see, there was some connection with Mirage, that those guys were getting hired to do it, but in terms of who was approving it, I don't think anybody was approving it, except maybe Peter, Kevin. It's certainly stuff that didn't uh, show up in the studio, you know? But that's the old pre-2003, you know, and licensing and approvals was more of a fast and loose thing than it became more of a business thing once they launched it in 2003. It says Palladium had the rights from Mirage to make RPGs based on the Turtles. They carried that license until the year 2000. Weird. Yeah. I mean, they weren't using it, though. Because the, the RPG game was one of the first things licensed, it came out before the cartoon and before the films. So back when the Turtles were still edgy, you know, like this independent thing, a lot of teenagers would play it. And they said that after the film came out and the cartoon came out, a lot of teenagers were like, well, yeah, I did play it, but that's for babies now. And like they were afraid it would stop being popular among teenagers. So they started releasing more of these like modules that were trying to throw in other stuff. And they ended up throwing in something called like a after the bomb, which was like, oh, it's using the same turtle system and the same turtles rules, but we're calling it after the bomb. And it's like, oh, what if another bomb of radioactive stuff landed? And if you're too afraid to use turtles logic, <laughs> this is how you get the mutant stuff. But all of the creatures that you could make in it, like if you flip through the art and stuff, it felt like mutanimals. Like not like again, not like literally, but just it was in that same vein. <laughs> and uh, they released uh, second editions of it as late as 1997. So it's wow. it, they were they were doing stuff with it the entire time, but at the same time trying to distance themselves from turtles, but at the same yeah. time clearly taking inspiration. Any idea why the license ended? Palladium decided they were going to end it in the year 2000. Okay. Well, they missed their chance at the 2003 resurgence. Oh well, <laughs> their their <laughs> loss. It actually says that uh, in the years later, in a February 2007 interview, someone at Palladium was hinting that, oh, that they were considering re-getting the license. If, <laughs> if, if, like, the CGI movie was really popular and if that spawned a sequel or whatever. I don't know. It's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. Someone needs to really write a book before everybody's dead about all the craziness that took place. Because it was a wild, wacky ride. And there's, like, no control over a lot of that stuff in the early years. And it was a lot of fun and a lot of uh, misunderstandings. Um, if you want to start the memoir, well, there was a big coffee table book about to be released on the turtles. Andrew Fargo, uh, author of one of these books, approached me like two years ago to interview me, as well as many other people related to the turtles phenomena, for his book, which I just, it's a big coffee table book, which will touch on some of the history, but 
obviously it's not going to know all the crazy stuff. <laughs> if that book's available for pre-order, we'll link to where you can pick it up on this episode's page. Fun, weird side fact about the um, the Turtles role-playing system. The Palladium system originally included a section in, in the extremely intense character sheet yeah. thing for fetishes. Each character could have a fetish. Yeah, I, and, I remember when you were telling me about this, I'm like, I didn't read that in the edition <laughs> that I read. Like, Right, and it was something that was in the Turtle handbook, but eventually when it started becoming popular with kids, they had to remove it. Right. What was Raphael's fetish? Her? I don't know that this Turtles had like pre-programmed like uh, official uh fetishes yeah that they were. but yeah i mean uh, i guess at this point well with him hooking up with two foxes according to according to adventures <laughs> <laughs> in my original plot for the story that wound up being in the 30th anniversary issue i had raphael with a new girlfriend that i created for that story but well wow. it thought it was too confusing and didn't have a point so i said no i'm just continuing the continuity i said if we set it now 2014 be post in a jar and uh, wraps hooked up with someone else. But they were really adamant about not setting it at a specific moment in time. So, in my sneaky way, I tried to give hints in the story about where the story takes place. Like, if I took out all the dates that were in the actual script in the uh, narration that you would have read, and instead trying to give uh, clues through what buildings the turtles mention. That would, if you know about New York history, it would tell the turtle story in a certain year. Interesting. How obscure is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, we never get to see Raph's coyote girlfriend. <laughs> oh man <laughs> I'll never say never no wait a minute wasn't um, Miss Cal from the future wasn't she a coyote I assumed based on the way that she was colored she had the same color as Ninjara Miss still had a, a wolf girlfriend and her name was Bubbles <laughs> <laughs> but that was stripped out but anyway you, you present an interesting enigma for fans with this new story in that uh, you got Raphael in his intergalactic wrestling outfit but then he's also with Ninjara so I, it, it's a puzzle to be unraveled. Post your theories on this episode's comments. <laughs> <laughs> All the Mutanimals had their backstories told, and, and then most of them were elaborated on later, except for Dreadmon. He had this one brief moment in an early issue where it elaborated on his backstory. Really complicated story about a Jamaican thief stealing a lycanthropic Tasmanian wolf talisman from a tourist. It just had, there's a bigger story here written <laughs> all over it, but it was never explained. Yeah, that's true. I don't know why we never get around to it. Probably because he died. Probably, yeah. probably thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those really complicated stories. You know, like Jaguars was kind of complicated as well. But we got to, you know what it was? I was probably going to deal with it in the Mutanimals book, but it got canceled too soon. Mm. Uh, how long did you guys know that was going to happen with the Mutanimals series? Pretty soon. I mean, it didn't have much sales out the door. I mean, Archie was like, you know, we don't like it. The story, I think they were saying that they didn't like the uh, direction it was going in. But really what it was is there was no way to, how do you launch a book like that in a, a newsstand? Yeah. Um, and there was, it's not like today, you know, so they you know, run a couple of ads in the turtle book and then that's it. You pop this thing out, this is called Mutanimals. It's got this kind of complicated logo and you throw a turtle on the cover every now and then, hoping that that kid sees it and hoping, of course, that the readers of the turtle book are going to pick it up anyways, out of loyalty. But I think it may have actually proved that maybe a lot of people picked up turtle book on the spot. You know, and weren't real true readers. And the true readers are buying it, but they were actually a small population at that point. You know, at the time, as a uh, reader who picked up the series early on and then followed it as best I could, I didn't have my own money. And uh, if I missed an issue, it was surreal. Until years later, when I actually like bought back issues of things that I'd missed, there'd be these holes in in the story, and be like, "Oh my God, what happened there? Michelangelo's <laughs> blind now? How'd that happen?" <laughs> Yeah, 
I'm going through the same thing right now, too, when I read Marvel Essentials. I'll get to an issue of uh, Daredevil that I didn't buy. I turned that page. I finished rereading something I read, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Not crazy, 40 years ago. And <laughs> then I get to the cover. Oh, here's the next issue. I finally get to read it now. Yeah, it's like it's some great. weird secret you're being told after a long time. It's lovely. And I just, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the whole Essentials and Showcase Presents line. They're so awesome. 10 bucks, 15 bucks. how can you go wrong? Yeah, for classic stories, you can't. It's great that uh, that IDW is reprinting Adventures, and I really, really, sincerely hope that they keep doing it uh, through the end of the of the series. And all the more reason for me to mention again to listeners: if any of this sounds interesting to you, you should totally buy these. There's a link to it on this episode's page where you can do it. So Murph, it's been a few years since the Turtles got sold. You were acting as licensing manager before that, and uh, I know you've been doing a web comic called Contains Traces of. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's been going on in the world of Steve Murphy? Uh, I think I started that a few months after getting laid off from Mirage when I didn't, didn't know what to do. At that point, I was still writing Turtles. I had have a friend whose company has a license to do Turtle magazine in England, which they were also selling to the Russian market. So through her, I was writing short Turtle stories based on the fast forward universe. Mm. Okay. So I did that as a freelancer for like a year before that ended. But in that period, I was like, you know, I don't really know what to do right now. I try to do a project where I don't have to partner up with an artist because I can't draw, but I can trace. <laughs> Anybody can trace. <laughs> so I thought I would um, start telling my life story sort of through the prism of partially real and partially uh, reimagined therapy sessions. And I would do so by taking the other big blockhead in life besides myself, Charlie Brown, and just alter his art with me. And that's it. And so I was trying to post a, do a post a day, a single panel a day, which is like a snail's pace, believe me, and just continue the story. I took a break in there at one point, a couple of months, and I'm actually taking a break right now. I'm going to come back to it, I believe, at the beginning of June. And um, I followed like the first couple of years of therapy sessions, which would have been back in, Christ, 2001. And then I kept jumping forward, and I'm currently doing sessions from a year ago. But through the course of all this, I talk about not just my life, but what it was like to get laid off from the Turtles, what it was like to work on the Turtles, and the complicated relationships I had with Peter Lear, Kevin Eastman, the CEO, and my friends there. So that's it's like reality. But I changed some names. Probably changed all names, actually. But anybody who knows me knows who these people are. It's really good. I mean, it's not something that's uh, maybe easy to read as it's coming out, but as of now, there's an awful lot of it out there, like hundreds of panels. I just hit the thousandth. Believe it or not. Wow. That's why I decided to take a break. A thousand. <laughs> but you know, it's a totally low key thing. Yeah. In fact, I started it with just a handful of people. I, when I started it, I sent the link to a few people, and that was it. And then I started attaching the um, the URL for that as my email signature. So then it kind of goes out. So I would bet no more than 30 or 40 people know about it. <laughs> it's a good read. It's sobering, as most good autobiographical work is. What can I Thank say? You. You've had some quite interesting late life experiences, I guess you could say, without risk of spoiling some of the core plot points, but uh, some things you'd never expect you'd have to deal with. I know, of course, what you're referring to, and yeah, I wouldn't want to give it away either right now, but yeah, and it was really difficult, some really difficult personal issues came up around the time my mother died, and uh, things have quite floored me, actually, but I think in hindsight are kind of interesting, particularly since I haven't really dealt with some of the ramifications of them yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
which is, you know, you wonder what the hell was he talking about. So Find out. Well, you sold <laughs> me, <laughs> now I gotta read it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's been my primary um, creative output for the past few years, just something to keep doing. And then throughout 2012 and into part of 2013, I wrote a novel, and I'm currently doing the second draft of that novel. I gave the first draft to you, Cap, and to uh, two other friends, and I got their input, and uh, now I'm coupling that input with my own input, if I haven't reread it, and I'm doing a second draft. So well, thank you again for taking the time to read it. No problem. The secret's out. Uh-huh. That one time on an episode of Nerdy Show Book Club where I mentioned one of the things I read was a manuscript and it was really good, that's the thing that it was. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so that I'm doing that, and... Um, Umber, the um, three-issue series that came out from Image in 2007, has never been collected as a trade collection. Harvey nominated Umbra. Just been collected. So now it's under one cover as a PDF, and I'm going to do some print-on-demand to take to a couple of small shows this summer. And then I might just ask Image if they want to print it. I have no idea what to do with it. Other than I want to get it into libraries because I now work as a librarian. And I teach writing classes at several area universities as well as a uh, community center. If anyone's interested in taking these classes, uh, where where do they need to live for that? You have to live in Western Massachusetts in the uh, Franklin County or Hampshire County regions. If you're an adult, you can take it at Greenfield Community College. And if you're a high school senior or female, you can take it at Smith College as part of their Young Women's Writing Workshop Program, which is an intensive workshop series that meets in the summers, where they take, you know, overachieving high school girls from all over the world, come there to take this program for two weeks, and I'm just one of the offerings. They take fiction, they take poetry, or they take graphic novel writing, and I teach that there. That sounds really cool. It's really challenging. It's cool. It's cool, because these girls are smart, you know, and most of them come in, they never read a comic book before, so you kind of like to educate them on comics and the whole medium. Then meanwhile, you've got a couple of nerdy girls that know exactly, they probably know more than I do. <laughs> um, they just want to get going. But, you know, it's these two weeks, um, you can't assign homework, which is a big drag because you're just forced to use that three hours every day. So no one really finishes anything. You never finish a graphic novel script by the end. I'm not teaching them how to draw, really write. But it's fun. And then the adult class I teach at a community college, um, you get people from all walks of life. And again, there's a lot of education going on, like what is a graphic novel? And then you get the people who have practically finished a graphic novel and I don't even know why they're taking a class. And then a comic book making class that I teach to 7 to 12-year-olds, and they drive me bananas. They don't, <laughs> they don't listen to anything. You know, I go in there with like a plan. You know, you always, let's talk about how you design panels. And this is a panel board. This is a gutter. This is what it bleeds off the page. And they're just like drawing already. They already come in there wanting to draw stuff. And it's a 16-week class that meets for an hour and a half once a week. Wow. <laughs> so I brought in Mad Magazine one day, like a stack of old ones. And it, you could tell the kids whose minds got blown that day. It was very cool. So the current thing we're doing on is they're making their own Mad Folding. Oh, neat. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I never knew I would enjoy teaching, but I do. That's very cool. Well, Murph, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks again for having me over. Remember, dear listeners, if you want to check out this IDW 30th anniversary special, go to your local comic store, or if you want to find a reason to uh, pop into a hot topic, the Chris Allen drawn cover of it is a hot topic exclusive, believe it or not. Like they need an excuse to go to hot topic. (laughs) We'll be back with more Turtle Talk, but here's another TMNT musical interlude. This one is of my favorite track from Turtles in Time, Neon Knight Riders. It's called Casio Pizza versus TMNT Square. And it's by Prince of Darkness. 
All right, so guys, the predictions were true. We went pretty deep. All deep. <laughs> Did you get lost at any point during that conversation? Yeah, but it was good because I was learning things that I just had no idea about. I mean, like I knew turtles went into all these different places, but it was really cool to hear straight from the horse's mouth, like not only how crazy it was making it, but just like all the drama behind the scenes. I don't know. It, 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 was, it was very enlightening. It was really cool, though. This is, again, one of the reasons why it was hard for me to pick up comics later in life because I felt like they went on for so long. I would just be lost. Yeah, you know? like where to start and who's the best and what things you need to get the stories from and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, now, Cap, you handed me the uh, Turtles Future Tense like story arc. Yeah, the, the Future Tense collection that Mirage put out leading into Forever War coming yeah. out. It's good. It's just like it didn't help that it took place 100 years in the future. So it felt like I had missed even more of stuff that was happening. And there were characters showing up that clearly, like, they knew, and, like, villains and stuff. Villains that had cybernetic enhancements and everything. I mean... I, I threw you in deep, but I wanted you to get yeah. some experience of the most intense material that they I mean, had. But, yeah, but it was still good. But I think it says something that you threw me in there, like, literally at the end here, and I still could enjoy it. Like, I could still follow it. It wasn't yeah. too confusing. One of the interesting things about what Murphy did was that he, along with some other writers and more artists than just Chris created a completely self-contained totally insular turtles universe that was as expansive if not in some cases more expansive than the mirage universe itself right. probably as expansive as more fair but in a shorter period of time they created just as much insane content to the point that they released three source books of material while they were still at archie wow i just had a thought that for people who see the new turtles trailer and they're like well i don't know they're doing something different with the turtles but a fan like me can look at it and go, man, it doesn't feel like the Ninja Turtles. Like, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And it's like, well, you know, they look different. It's like, yeah, but, you know, you don't complain when Batman's rebooted or when that's rebooted. I'm like, yeah, but there's something different. You can do different things, but have it still feel true to the source. This doesn't, this is missing that. This comic, the future tense one that you handed me, this is as different as possible. Yeah, maybe. this is as different as possible, but never for a moment did this not feel 100% like the Turtles? And I don't know if you could know it unless you pick it up and you look at it, but I'm, I'm just flipping through this now, and this is so Ninja Turtles, so true to form, but yet so vastly different that when you look at something like the movie trailer, you just go, oh yeah, it's just, uh, that's just a big cash grab. That's all that is. It's like, <laughs> it's sad. It's true, though. Now, something, something we mentioned in past episodes, but maybe you might just be hearing for the first time, is that, uh, Doug, you did a series called Hard Truths with Doug. It's a video series, mm -hmm. and uh, in it you present a concept that um, it will be challenging to most general purpose fans of really anything. Yes. Uh, your first one was why uh, Jar Jar Binks is better than Chewbacca. In almost every aspect, yes. Yes. And then your second, your follow-up, was who should really direct Michael Bay's Ninja Turtles. Yeah, because as soon as it was announced, the internet blew up, there's a lot of controversy, I wanted to dive into this head first because I'm a huge Turtles fan, obviously. And what I do is I pick several names that I think would make for good directors and we try and figure out who ultimately would be the best. And uh, I clear up a couple of the confusion as to why is Michael Bay's name attached to it if he's not even really directing, he's not even really writing it. We go deep into that and uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. I won't spoil it, but it's, uh, I, I think you'll enjoy it. We'll link to it on this episode's page, of course. One thing I want to do in closing is I want to read some of the fan mail that they got. Oh, right on. Some of it's funny because there were a lot of little kids writing in, but also some of it's like 
pretty impressive. The challenges that as a writer, especially after what Murph said about like having little to no input from anyone, the very tough questions he was being asked in regards to the stories he was telling. A couple fun ones first. Andy Lacey of Bonita Springs, Florida said, Dear Donatello, I think you are the coolest turtle alive. I also like Cuddly the Cowlick. Do you think you can make a cuddly toy? The reply was, we would love to see a Cuddly the Cowlick toy, be it an action figure or a vehicle. Unfortunately, Playmates Toys thinks otherwise. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> On the uh, Turtles blog that I mentioned, they actually talked about developing like action figure concepts and everything for the Mutanimals cartoon show. So that you see like uh, character designs for the show. Ninjara was going to be a part of the show. They, they made it a little bit more cartoony and so on. I'll link to where you can check out all this like archive, strange Mutanimals television show that never was stuff. But they actually talked again about Cuddly being a vehicle or a vehicle slash carrying case <laughs> and and how he would come with a tube of like clear goo to be saliva that you could cover uh, your face with geez. what was that fascination in the late 80s and early 90s with just taking your toys and pouring goo on them and just ruining them <laughs> my parents wouldn't let me get it because they didn't they were worried about getting in the carpet and stuff everybody I, was worried and you always did i never did because i never had it but then i finally got some mutagen but i could only play with it outside a wise decision ultimately it happened to me with the Ghostbusters, and then after it happened there, I wasn't going to get it with the Turtles. That was it. I had one, one shot. <laughs> Tim Brayloy from South Carolina said, Dear Turtles, I am 12 years old, and I have an idea to save Wingnut and Screwloose's race. <laughs> if you can get a human female to get in contact with Wingnut and then put mutagen on the female, you can mutate her into one of his people, and they can save his race. Understand? If this will work, please tell me. I would like to save his race. Aww. The reply was, of course, that it's like, oh, man, uh, you find us a girl with a crush on Wingnut who'd like to be mutated into a bat and you've got a deal. Uh, but seriously, even mutated, she'd be partially human and would fall short of being 100% genetically compatible with Wingnut. Man, just crushing dreams, man. It's all they're about. <laughs> Harsh realities. Jim Kennedy from Louisville, North Carolina said, I want to see the turtles on a dude ranch. This way, I will see what the turtles look like on horses. <laughs> Eventually, if he read the series, eventually he got to. Or if he just saw the third movie. Actually, not. They weren't horses. They were camels and yaks. So yeah, third movie. Um, That's what you get, kid. Also, I will find out what Michelangelo thinks of pork and beans. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one turtle will be able to sing cowboy songs. If they go to the ranch, tell them to watch out for Cuddly's cow patties. My dad says they must be bigger than Bebop. (laughs) (laughs) Bigger than Bebop. I love it. <laughs> Kent McDaniel of Chicago, Illinois said, as an elementary school teacher and a father of a seven-year-old son, I want to say how much I admire what you're doing at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures. Within your exciting adventures tales, you're sneaking in a lot of great information about everything from biology to geography to ecology, history, and anthropology. Very impressive. I'm happy when I see one of my students with a copy of TMNTA. As a reader, I'd like to compliment you on your stories as entertainment. I read every issue to my son, a loyal fan, and find the writing excellent. The characters, settings, and plots are all very well developed. I sometimes suspect that I'm enjoying the stories at least as much as my son. Wow. So here's where the challenging stuff starts. This is from Andy Parker of Healden, Oklahoma. Dear Mr. Eastman and Laird, I used to be a big fan of your characters, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But when they started talking about New Age junk, like when Michelangelo in the cartoon said, you gotta be totally zenned out, they really turned me off. As a responsible young Christian, I will not pollute mine or my six-year-old brother's mind with this stuff. Here we go. P.S. Read your Bible. It works wonders. Ooh. What was the response to that? The response was, sorry you feel this way, Andy. 
However, Zen is not New Age. In fact, Zen was brought to China from India in the 6th century, later finding its way to Japan in the 12th. It has been described as, quote, a special teaching without scriptures beyond words and letters, seen differently in one's nature. Zen is not a sect, but an experience. In all, it's another way of looking at the world, end quote. Wasn't meant to offend, dude. And in a later issue, where Andy Parker's letter was rebuked by another writer, Murphy added, We'd also like to add that any truly religious person would be tolerant of other people's religious beliefs and not equate that which is foreign with that which is evil. Oh. Dang, man, dropping some knowledge. Some really heavy stuff happened in those letter pages occasionally. Yeah. Daniel Glasner of Lowell, Kentucky said, I like your fighting, but I don't like the meditating. I think it's satanic. What? If anything, fighting is satanic. <laughs> So I haven't bought any of your comic books for a while now. I'm asking you to take out all the meditating. Thanks. And um, in that same issue, Matt Freed of Lambertville, Missouri said, Hey dude, I think you're cool, but in issue 23, there's a mutant that has three eyes. In the Bible, it says that three eyes are a symbol of the devil. I'm not saying I don't like you dudes, but try not to write and draw that junk. What is going on? <laughs> the reply was, sorry dudes, but meditating is not satanic, nor does the devil lurk in every image of an alien with more than two eyes. Meditating is a devotional exercise of contemplation that developed in a society that has no concept of the Christian devil. An alien with three eyes, Belly Bomb is his name, is an alien with three eyes, nothing more. God. And, and here's one final one. This is in response to Splinter telling the story of the, the Japanese myth of how the islands of Japan and the universe came to be. Joshua Lewis of Encino, California wrote, I've just read issue 28. In the story, it says that the blind god took out one eye and made the sun, and then took out the other and made the moon. In real life, God made the sun and the moon. Could you tell me that your way is not true? Uh, what a weird question. <laughs> please tell me your way is not true. Ninja Turtle writers, please tell me that, that that's not historically accurate. Like, oh boy. How do you, how, did they respond to that? They did. Oh, here, what in, is it? In Japanese mythology, it was the blind God who gave up each one of his eyes in order to make the sun and the moon. According to Christian belief, it was God who did so. Either of you can be true depending on which belief system one follows. Understand? Damn! I'm loving it! In the back of an Archie-published comic, this is happening. That's awesome. God bless. And this is like Archie, like Jughead and Archie shit, right? Correct. They had a separate line, the Archie Adventure series, which continues today in their still-being-published, believe it or not, Sonic the Hedgehog comics. Wow. But Archie also has grown a pair in recent years. I mean, uh... Aren't they yeah, killing him they're off? killing off Archie. Yeah. Well, that's not even the start of it. That's often misinterpreted. That thing, there's a, a series called Life with Archie that is meant to be a finite series that explores what Archie's life would be like if he kept going out of, out of being a teenager, and it ends with his death. Oh, okay. So that's what that is. But um, they've revived a sub imprint they had way back in the day, and they're telling like superhero stories and different stories with it, including a series called Afterlife with Archie. And in that, uh, he becomes we, Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's written by horror comics writer Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and drawn by amazing Italian artist Francesco Francavilla, who we've interviewed on the show in the past. And uh, it is a 100% mature horror story about a zombie outbreak in Riverdale. It's amazing. It takes all of Archie continuity. You don't really, you don't have to know because I don't fucking know it. Mm -hmm. And it takes all these characters and turns it into this very artful black magic survival horror thing. It all starts because Reggie hits Jughead's dog and Jughead asks Sabrina the teenage witch to bring him back to life. And her oh aunts, her aunts say, Sabrina, you can't fuck with that. That's dangerous stuff. And Jughead pleads with her, and she does it anyway, and inadvertently unleashes a zombie apocalypse that murders viciously 
everyone in Riverdale. I wow, you're kind of blowing my mind, and it's fucking amazing. It's an ongoing story. We'll link to where you can pick up Volume One. I feel like I need to turn in my writer's card. I can't be a writer anymore. I can't top that. You give me Archie comics. I'm like, I don't know what to do, man. Archie, it's been around for forever. All the people out there clearly have great ideas on what to do with Archie. I'm just saying, amazing. I mean, it could only happen now. Archie grew a pair. They decided they wanted to still be relevant in addition to publishing crap that you buy at the grocery store that makes them money. So, holy crap. Yeah. So they do that in addition. So they still do the grocery store stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the crap. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's Uh, incredible. I'm so (laughs) excited. I want to, like, read that now. uh, You should. Afterlife with Archie. It's great. And, and, I mean, uh, obviously, if TMNT Adventures existed today and was being published through Archie in some alternate universe where that's possible, obviously they would uh, have no second thoughts about the content that they were publishing. That's just an odd combination. I never, I never imagined Archie being anything more than, like you say, in the, in the grocery aisle, but wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Blew my mind. So like I said, we're going to link to these volumes, these IDW collections. Hopefully IDW will be able to collect as far as the Future Tense material and beyond. Right now, they're just at the point where Chris Allen joined the creative team. That's about uh, issue 23. Uh, volume 8 comes out in August. And, you know, they're, they're not perfect. Between volumes five and six, the issue orders shuffled a bit to make sure that they could have an even number of issues in the volume. And there's a Mutanimals tie-in that's collected later than when it actually was supposed to happen. But the important part is it's getting collected. It's all there. Hopefully, if you've never experienced this before, you'll have the chance to experience it. Go out, pick up the 30th anniversary issue. Uh, write to IDW. Uh, <laughs> write to them and tell them that their stuff is a <laughs> this reincarnation crap please tell me this isn't true (laughs) ask them to tell you that the the reincarnation origins of their version of the turtles is is a is a fictitious belief and doesn't pertain to the christian god oh my gosh (laughs) but no seriously write to idw I'll, i'll put the email address in this episode's description tell them you'd like to see more Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventure stuff or see Steve Murphy write more Turtle stuff. That's always an option. That would be amazing. I'm speaking as a fan here, like a diehard fan. It would be cool to see more of him. So if you think so too, let him know and be sure to pick up the collections. From volume two onwards, you're getting the Dean Clarain, aka Steve Murphy material. And uh, when I say that it's, it's all ages, I mean, it's all ages. It's good no matter how old you are. Now, Nerdy Show is a listener-supported podcast network. If you like this show, if you like any of the shows in the network, we rely on your money to survive. And even a dollar contribution, well, every little bit helps, and we'll send you cool stuff in the mail, including all kinds of outtakes, exclusive images, and all kinds of hilarious and awesome audio perks of various varieties. We've got to give some shout-outs to some awesome people who've supported us this month, including Dapper Man About Town Lawrence Hondrick, Sean Lawlor, who said... Here's a couple of dollars to help cover the network costs for this month. Keep up the awesome, nerdy work, everyone. Garrier said, I'm loving the new shows. And he's referring to Dr. Vern's nerd music podcast, The Nerd Groove, and nerdcore rapper Mega Ran and producer Kay Murdoch's Bits, Rhymes, and Life. Miss Genki wrote in and said, More money will come once I have a job. And that money will be for Pokeballs of Steelix. I need more Jamesy and Percy Pokowitz in my life. And don't we all? CodeMonkey85 said, It's been a while. Just thought I'd toss a few dollars in the pot. Thank you, sir. Frozen Treasure said, Hey, guys. Sorry I couldn't give this to you in person. Also that I couldn't can't give more. Maybe next time. I had the pleasure of meeting Frozen Treasure recently. He came to Orlando all the way from Australia. It was way cool, dude. I hope to see you again. Muckraker wrote in and said, Happy Memorial Day. 
and a microsode to the next donor because he was so generous that he contributed enough that only another dollar would earn someone the right to make us talk about whatever they want to for 15 minutes. And that winner was Kevin Weiss. He said, it's a book. Soon I'm getting a raise and will be able to support more often. Thanks so much, guys. We seriously couldn't operate without you. So it's all up to you. But we know times is tight. If you can't afford to directly donate to us, there's all kinds of ways you can support us, including any shopping you do on Amazon. Just go to Nerdy Show, follow our Amazon link on the front page, do your shopping through our links, and everything you buy, we will get a percentage of. At no cost to you, just your regular shopping, that will help you support Nerdy Show. Just follow our links. And then, of course, tell your friends, because your friends might have money. And if you like Nerdy Show, chances are they'll like it too. And chances are we'll like them. So let's all hold hands. Or give high fives or something. And last but not least, share, share, share. If you love Nerdy Show, if you like this episode, please, please, please spread it like a friendly virus. We're starting to move our shows over to SoundCloud, including this one. And through SoundCloud, you can embed our episodes just like you would a YouTube video and even comment on specific places in the track. To be like, yo, this thing you said right here, that thing right there at this specific time code, that was awesome. Anyway, it's all up to you. We wouldn't have been doing this since 2009 if you guys hadn't have been into it. So thanks. Speaking of supporting stuff, May also suggest that you follow the Amazon links to pick up TMNT Adventures and all the volumes that are available on Amazon. On this episode's page, you'll find all the handy-dandy links you need to check them out and support the reprints of this amazing book. One last thing before we go, we have a week left for you to nominate us for this year's Best of Orlando. We've won uh, Best Local Website for a couple years in a row now, and, and hey, we could win it again, but that's up to you. Best of Orlando is a yearly competition hosted by Orlando Weekly, the number one independent newspaper in town. And um, ourselves and our sponsors, A Comic Shop slash The Geek Easy, campaign to be on the list every year. Of course, people think highly of us, so fortunately, we don't have to campaign too hard, I guess. But um, we could sure use your help, even if you don't live in Orlando. It's great to be recognized in our local community, and people often turn to the Best of Orlando list to find out what's good in town, what's going on, and in many cases, what makes Orlando such a cultural mecca for nerds. So uh, we want to be sure that we stay on that list and rank highly. But this year, they're doing something different. Instead of just voting for what you want to win, first you have to nominate what you want to win, and then you have to vote. As of this episode, we'll have about a week left for you to nominate us in the various categories. But don't worry. If you'd like to help Nerdy Show out, if you'd like to throw us a bone and vote on us in this list, we'll link to you on this episode's page where you can see all the categories that we're campaigning for. And if you got extra time, there's some other cool businesses that we support that are on there. So if you want to put those and nominate them while you are ner- nominating Nerdy Show, then I'm sure that those businesses would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, they're all super cool. We wouldn't be suggesting them if they weren't. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If so, let us know. Comment on this episode's page. Let us know on the forums. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Doug. Bye, I'm Colin. Taking us out, here's one last track from OCR's Shellshocked album, Running with the Shredder by Ergosonic.
Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. We mean that. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show Network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on iTunes, shopping at nerdyshow.com store, or directly donating to the network. Any size contribution gets you exclusive Nerdy Show audio and images and lets you participate in our monthly support drives. Just go to nerdyshow.com support to chip in. To find out how you or your company can underwrite this or other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com sponsorships. For more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programs, community forums, videos, articles, and more, head over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show Network podcasts via the iTunes store. And for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.